Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 30th of March, 2022. It's now 17 minutes past one. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, Vanessa Beely and Debbie Evans. Many apologies, some technical problems. Couldn't explain why, but uh, we're online now. Well, why mainly is because Rumble. Rumble is not streaming today for some reason, so we had to set up uh, the backup stream. Um, so apologies for that. Uh, okay, let's get straight on here. Uh, Alex uh, with uh, Ukraine. And uh, well, we have an article in, is this in Ukrainian on screen at the moment? This one is actually in Russian, Mike, but it's from the Ukrainian outlet ZN. Um, and this is the stage we've got to with the war against Russia. Uh, it seems to be the world against Russia, at least in the imagination of the Ukrainians and the West now. So you've done an auto-translate there. Uh, so that you've, uh, you're illustrating to people that the Secretary of the National Defence and Security Council of Ukraine, uh, as the name suggests, a very powerful role in all Soviet, uh, former Soviet countries, Alexander Danilov, took part in a telethon kicked off by President Zelensky a couple of days ago, uh, in which, in his own slot, uh, the NSC chairman Danilov was very loose-lipped and said it wouldn't hurt uh, if a second front could be opened up. He mentioned the Caucasus first, about which there'll be more on the next slide. But on this slide, you can see that he's also mentioning the Far East, the unresolved territorial dispute between Japan and Russia over the Kuril Islands in the Sea of Okhotsk, um, which, of course, has uh, been ramping up recently because the Russians are sending amphibious craft to back up their Ukrainian mission, cutting through the Strait of uh, Tsugaru between two Japanese islands uh, in international waters. But the Japanese are taking umbrage at this. He's also mentioning the former uh, territory of East Prussia, which at the end of the Second World War was split uh, with a straight line down the middle between Poland and Russia. And as you mentioned before, uh, he's egging on the Poles to stake a claim to the southern half uh, of uh, Kaliningrad, sorry, the northern half of Kaliningrad. Um, which is going to be very, very hair-raising, very loose-lipped stuff. He's, he's uh, throwing uh, his toys out of the pram and saying our so-called allies in Georgia aren't stepping up to the plate. And as you now have on screen, uh, if we zoom in particularly on the most uh, febrile of all these potential second fronts, with obviously Turkey and Britain, uh, Britain's spookery in the background here, but let's just take it at face value that it's Azerbaijan for now, uh, regular viewers will know about the possibility at any time when, uh, when spring breaks, any year that the Azerbaijani armed forces could make a full frontal assault, not just on the exclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, as they did in 2020, but there's a very strong possibility that the Azerbaijanis have, will now go full anti-Russian, uh, as I say, with a lot of Gulf and, and British and Turkish moving in the background, and could launch an assault on the internationally legally recognised sovereign state of Armenia itself. There's a thin corridor called Sunik, uh, which is the only non-Turkic territory between Greece and China. So all that's going on in the background. And if you see a war break out in a couple of days, it won't just be round 15 of a punch up between the Armenians and the Azeris. There will be a lot of deep stuff going on behind it. But what's really important now is that the Russian MOD has issued a statement. They are, of course, peacekeepers and have been since the September 2020 war in the Gona Karabakh. They're on the ground now and they have slapped the Azeris royally on the wrist and said, don't even think about it. And the Azeris don't seem to be reckoning with this yet. But as with other figures right up to President Zelensky, we see that Danilov, the National Defence and Security Council chairman, is speaking on behalf of an ill-identified Ill Western conglomerate in this. He's not shooting his mouth off completely at random. He's doing his, uh, the bidding, I would say, of his Western paymasters. 
Now, particularly when we talk about the crossover between jihadis coming in from Central Asia and the Caucasus to Ukraine and uh, the other aspects of the Ukrainian war, we have to see how much of the jihadi strategy uh, has uh, seeped into the way that the Ukrainian government and military wage warfare. Uh, another Alexander uh, is relevant here. We'll see a video in a moment. This Alexander is a namesake of mine. There's quite a few in the region. That was Alexander Danilov. This one is Alexander Aristovich, whom we played a few days ago in a clip from 2019, where he was saying very uh, straight out that Ukraine probably would get into uh, NATO in the end, but he fully recognized that the cost would be a massive destructive invasion by Russia. So he, he was basically saying, bring it on, the deaths will be worth it. Uh, so this is the same gentleman with a background, notoriously enough, in comedy and entertainment, like so many others of the Ukrainian cabinet now. So here he is. He's, a, he's a, some kind of vague military strategy advisor to President Zelensky. And in a 40-second Russian uh, pair of clips with English subtitles, you will see him in two studio settings from the last couple of years, saying how much he admires ISIS and how they have got the torture and uh, menacing of people uh, via media um, aggrandizement down to a fine art, and that they are the force of the future because of what they do. And of course, many of these guys have now come into the Ukraine. So let's have a look. Uh, and if you're uh, watching in video, you'll see the subtitles of two clips totaling 40 seconds in which the um, uh, advisor to the president on security matters, um, Aristovich, makes these claims. Из наиболее мудрых и удачливых стратегов, которые есть. Все рассчитано до максимально точно, даже жестокость. Пока знаю. Должна была производить определенное воздействие. Это бесчеловечная абсолютно стратегия, но, но очень высокого уровня. Очень мудрая, с учетом конкретных интересов. Они очень правильно действуют. Есть большая книга, где проанализированный ИГИЛ хорошо. И там видно, что они применяют передовые методы хозяйства, а не передовые методы управления, на самом ну, деле. Терроризм тех, такой. Те, которых нуждается весь мир. А параллельно это является терроризм, средневековая жестокость, сжигание людей, там расстрелы, отрезание голов и так далее, и так далее. И, но это абсолютно сетевая структура из будущего. And noteworthy is that in both of these clips uh, Alexander Aristovich is actually speaking Russian. Uh, he was brought up in Soviet Georgia and he's speaking for an international audience here, not to his own cheerleaders. He's actually saying to the whole of the former Soviet world and probably broadcasting that this should be used in other conflict zones in the former Soviet Union. If you want to get ahead, the thing to do is to set up an absolutely brutal uh, torture and slaughter media factory. Uh, as has been mastered by Daesh. And he says that this is a horrible strategy, but it's very wise and far-sighted. I suppose we'd better um, ask Vanessa for an analysis of well, that look, because before, she's been up close we, and personal. I, I do want this. to do that, Alex, but before we do that, I just, want to, I just want to mention this because I was sent through a piece of video this morning and it is unverified, but uh, the, the piece of text that went with it said this. The whole, the whole, I'm not going to show the video because it is, frankly, extremely gruesome, but the, the, the text went uh, like this. The whole world must see this footage uh, so they realize that it's not a war between Russia and Ukraine, which is supported by the NATO countries, but the war between good and evil. In this video, Ukrainian soldiers shoot Russian pr prisoners of war in the legs uh, and afterwards give them a severe beating. In the at the beginning of this video, there are Russian prisoners of war lying on the ground with bullet wounds in their legs. Some of them have got legs, uh, leg bones broken. It might give the impression that the Russian military were captured having been wounded. Uh, but that was not the case. At the end of the video, we can see Ukrainian soldiers shooting all the newly arrived prisoners through their legs. Many of them are dying from shock due to the pain right on camera. And all of this is being filmed by Ukrainian soldiers themselves. They've been treating 
uh, the captured Donbass defenders the same way throughout these past eight years. Uh, and Alex, that seems to fit very well with what you have just shown. Yes, and we're deliberately not showing the gruesome stuff. I'm not on my Telegram channel either, but some of it does reach me. And this, there's a whole bulk of it that now is verifiable because it's it's tallies with place, time, dialogue and the like. And it does seem that a lot of Russian POWs on arrival at processing facilities are handcuffed. And you'll know this from the Northern Irish Troubles. That in the past, the, the so-called gentlemanly way of kneecapping somebody was to hitch their trousers up to prevent gangrene setting in. But that isn't even done to these Russians. They're expected to die on the spot. And if they survive, of course, they will lose their limbs to gangrene because uniform fragments will have gone into the leg wounds. But they're using assault rifles to shatter the tibia and fibula. It's, it's you know. I, I haven't seen anything like it, even from the, the so-called religious wars in the former Soviet Union, where you've got a jihadi element. I haven't seen this element of brutality, and this is Slav on Slav. Okay, well, let's uh, welcome Vanessa Bailey to the programme. Uh, Vanessa, uh, have you got any thoughts on what Alex has just presented? Yeah, I mean, I have. I've, I unfortunately saw that video, and I've seen a number of others, and I, I've also um, been given a number of channels of some of the Azov battalion commanders, etc. And the channels are full of this kind of um, torture and humiliation process, not only against uh, Russian captured Russian soldiers, which of course is in violation of all kind of Geneva Convention um, on the treatment of prisoners of war. Um, I believe I've seen uh, information sort of circulating that the perpetrators of those crimes against those Russian POWs have now been captured by the Spesnets uh, forces, um, and I'm sure they will be dealt with accordingly. Um, but you know, we the thing is, through the 10 years of war against Syria, we saw multiple videos like this, very, very uh, similar, very similar. If you remember, in 2016, the beheading of the of the 12-year-old um, child Abdullah Isa. Um, which was another gruesome um, element. ISIS were almost gentlemanly in comparison to, to what we're seeing from these Azov and Idar battalions, um, you know, the fascist and far-right and ultra-nationalist Nazi battalions in Ukraine. I would say not the ISIS were, were clean compared to what we're seeing um, surfacing now from inside Ukraine. Yes. I think, Vanessa, I'd just add to that, that uh, last night I watched a BBC clip where the BBC simply attempting to apologise uh, for the uh, neo-Nazi battalions, uh, downplaying it, quite obscene production by the BBC as they attempt to spin this narrative. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's uh, put this on screen then. This is uh, Ukraine's propaganda wars is the headline. Uh, international PR firms, DC lobbyists, and CIA cutouts. This is a, a an article in Mid Press published a few days ago by Dan uh, from Dan Cohen. Um, and so he begins by saying, uh, to bolster the perception of Ukrainian military metal, Kiev has churned out a steady stream of sophisticated propaganda aimed at stirring public and official support from Western countries. Uh, the campaign includes language guides, key messages, and hundreds of propaganda posters, some of which contain fascist imagery uh, and even praise neo-Nazi leaders. Uh, Ukraine's propaganda strategy uh, earned it praise from NATO commander, uh, who told uh, the Washington Post the, they are really excellent in STRATCOM, media, info ops, and also psyops. 
Uh, and the Washington Post uh, said in their report here that Western officials say that while they cannot independently verify much of the information that Kiev puts out about the evolving battlefield situation, including casualty figures for both sides, it nonetheless represents highly effective STRATCOM. Um, so uh, then, according to uh, PR Week, uh, also highlighted in the article on Mint Press, uh, the headline on, in PR Week is Global PR Community Rallies to Help Ukraine Government Comms. Uh, and so uh, this initiative, this propaganda initiative, was launched by uh, an anonymous figure who founded the Ukraine, a Ukraine-based public relations firm. So this article says, from the first hour of war, we decided to join the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to help them distribute the official sources to show the truth. This unnamed person said, uh, this is a hybrid war, the mix of uh, bloodily struggling fight uh, and huge disinformation and fake campaign uh, led by Russia is what they're uh, attempting to say. So who is actually behind it? Well, in fact, this organization, according to the Mint Press article, uh, the uh, PR network. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, a British organization set up by uh, Nikki uh, Roganozzi and uh, Francis Ingham. Uh, and Francis Ingham, of course, uh, previously worked for the Conservative Party. Uh, and he sits on the UK government uh, communication service strategy and evaluation council. And he's chief executive of the International Communications Consultancy Organization and leads the membership body for UK local government communications, which is called LG Comms. Um, so it looks like a lot of this uh, propaganda, this pro-Ukrainian propaganda coming out from, uh, from the UK. Uh, and uh, again, as no doubt Vanessa will tell, remind us in a second, uh, we saw the same type of thing in Syria. Um, so uh, let's uh, put Provoke Media on, and the headline on this is uh, Global PR Industry Pledges Communications Support for Ukraine. Uh, and uh, so they are uh, uh, basically saying that uh, there was a dossier, uh, and uh, yes, well, they're talking about the Snake Island incident, of course, um, and <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, as this uh, came on from CNN, had to admit uh, the Snake Island incident wasn't actually true. So a lot of this propaganda came from these PR companies through the mainstream media, where we got the go F yourself statement from the people dying on the island, apparently. But then it turned out that they were alive and well afterwards, as acknowledged by CNN here and so on. Um, and so where does that take us? Uh, it takes us to this uh, publication, Mac Paul, and uh, the truth about Russian attack on Ukraine. And I'm not really interested in what this article says, other than it does list um, some of the uh, recommended, some of the approved media outlets. Um, so if we put a few of these on screen, uh, first of all, we've got sources in Russian, and this uh, includes uh, uh, Novaya Gazeta, uh, that is uh, tied to the National Endowment for Democracy. We've got Medusa on there, which is uh, funded by the government of Latvia, the Oak Foundation, Open Society Foundation, and so on. Uh, we've got uh, Holland Media, uh, which is an offshoot of Medusa. Uh, and we've got uh, BBC Russia. Uh, we've got Current Time TV, which is uh, created by CIA-funded CIA or founded propaganda outlet Radio Free Europe, according to the Mint Press article. Uh, we've got Censor, uh, funded by uh, Yuri Betusov, uh, a former advisor to the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, and so on. And then we've got the sources in English, uh, and unsurprising list uh, on that there. So we've got Vox, we've got BBC, Politico, The Washington Post, uh, foreign Affairs, The Economist, CNN, and The Guardian. Um, so, um, Vanessa, this perhaps is no surprise 
uh, that we are seeing. I mean, that was that it is a first-rate article in Mint Press, uh, uh, but it's no surprise the content. Uh, I mean, you know, if you go back to the uh, UK Foreign Office document leak, of course, showing the millions that uh, the UK Foreign Office and intelligence agencies were spending on out or funding outreach agencies like uh, ARC Group, uh, headed up by Alistair Harris and who employed James LeMessurier to create the White Helmets and the Free Syrian Police. But to uh, do exactly this, to run STRATCOM uh, operations and to provide media support um, or, or sort of whitewashing for the various armed groups, extremist armed groups inside um, Syria. And so now you have what, what I call the fash washing brigade um, headed up by the UK um, to provide the same uh, media support for the Nazis. And I was just talking before we came on about a headline today in The Guardian, which effectively says the Azov brigades are uh, nothing more than Ukrainian patriots fighting the real Nazis, meaning Russia. So that's how The Guardian is spinning it. Um, and that obviously is, is, you know, what they're being told to do right now is to spin the narrative, switch it around to Russia being um, the Nazi fascist force invading Ukraine and the Azov being nothing more than, than slightly right wing patriots defending their, their nation state. Yes. Now, on Friday, uh, we put this on screen uh, because the UK government had been tweeting it out, exposed Russian spy agency behind cyber incidents. Uh, and we quoted uh, Liz Truss saying Russia's targeting of critical national infrastructure is calculated and dangerous. Uh, it shows Putin is prepared to risk lives to sow division and confusion amongst allies. And the point we were making was that, of course, cyber is very much uh, front and center of the uh, new uh, Ministry of Defense integrated operating concept. Uh, and we were making the point that this integrated operating concept is offensive rather than defensive. Uh, but Vanessa, um, you uh, came across uh, one person in particular, um, and uh, and we thought we should uh, run through a little bit, just give people mm. a little bit of information about uh, this guy, because he is Ukrainian, but he seems to be working for Microsoft. And the question is, uh, are the cyber uh, activities that he's involved in uh, defensive or offensive? Yeah, and of course, uh, Ben Wallace and his... his um... Uh, Vovan and Luxus uh, prank call, which he supposedly hung up on immediately. He talks about um, going on the offense uh, in the cyber war also, as opposed to defensive. So this was really interesting. This, this guy was actually brought to my attention by the commander of the uh, Christian Orthodox Syrian National Defense Forces uh, in the northern Hamar town of Al-Skelbiye. He brought it up, and we'll come on to that in a, in a few minutes, um, because this guy was issuing death threats against uh, the members of those national defense forces. And of course, we are seeing um, these attacks against uh, particularly Russian-speaking Christian Orthodox. There was a video of an Orthodox priest being dragged out of a church. I can't remember exactly where it was and being kidnapped by the Ukrainian forces. So there is now this backlash against uh, Russian Orthodox uh, in Ukraine. So, so basically I was sent it because he was issuing threats against um, Russian Orthodox Christians inside Syria. But when I actually looked, and this was his pinned post, he talks about his company and its entire staff work around the clock in the service of Ukraine 
offering cybersecurity support services without any government funding. But then he mentions that as the UK provided support to Ukraine through our company, now I still don't know whether this means through Microsoft or whether it means he has um, established a side company to receive whatever support the UK is providing. Um, and he then goes on to, to talk about the fact that he and his partner have donated two million to help cybersecurity and then glory to Ukraine. But of course, in, in it, this is the Facebook translation. It's Slava Ukraina and death to Putin. So here is a guy who is effectively signaling Nazi affiliation, um, working for Microsoft as, um, if we go on, we then, um, this is his Facebook page. This is the header. His profile picture is a picture of Bill Gates. I'm not quite sure who that is in the background. Maybe Michael or Alex can tell me. Um, and if we then go to his LinkedIn profile, um, he is a senior uh, security analyst um, with Microsoft or consultant rather. Yes. Yeah, it's on screen. Yes, sorry. Um, now, this guy was uh, educated in Odessa, then in Munich. He's He was born in 1987, but he ended up, and I'm not quite sure how, <laughs> at Harvard University, where he studied uh, information security and computer forensics. Now, while he's talking about cyber security, um, his actual main focus is on cyber warfare and I'll come on to another slide in a minute where he talks about infiltrating or hacking the FSB, the security services in Russia. He has apparently shut down uh, ATMs in Russia, etc. So he's obviously waging a hacking war um, against uh, Russia. But he's also um, connected to and supporting of the terrorists in Syria. So again, we have this connection between the Ukrainian Nazi battalions and uh, the terrorist groups inside Syria. So he's talking here about supporting the, the free Syrians. But of course, in Idlib, that means those that are dominated by Al-Qaeda. Um, Free Syrians. Uh, so, uh, and then um, he also. This is where he is threatening um, Nabil Al Abdullah, who is, uh, as he describes, the dog of the lion, which of course means uh, President Assad, and of the Russians. Um, as I say, this is the translation. I think this was in Arabic. So he then goes on to say that if Nabil Al Abdullah comes to fight in Ukraine, um, he will make sure that he's dispatched. And I think in another post, he describes him as being sent to, to join Hafez al-Assad. So here we have someone that is extremely um, fanatic, extremist in his um, language. But um, now the other interesting thing, on the 6th of March, he talks about uh, deliveries underway for the heroes of the Ukrainian army. Um, and here we have um, these scopes are fabricated by uh, a, an organization or a factory in Czechoslovakia, which is EU funded, um, Zahori Trade. And the brand is the Night Pearl Scopes. Of course, they say that they manufacture for um, defense departments of various nations in the EU, but also they, they sort of 
promote the hunting aspect of their work, but these are obviously being brought in as um, military and defense. Um, he then also uh, describes um, receiving the Covertus made. Covertus is an organization, a factory again in Kiev, the drone jammer anti-drone KVSG-6. So this guy is clearly um, being used to funnel weapons in to uh, the Ukrainian forces. We, I haven't yet sort of seen exactly how he's bringing them in. But if we then, you know, if we if we look at his Facebook page, he, he has a number of images which clearly show his affiliations, anti-Russia, pro-Nazi, uh, pro-terrorists in Syria. He talks about various operations. For example, here he's talking about secret information leaked with the names of Russian intelligence officers in the FSB involved in criminal activities in Europe. Um, and he says, soon a list of the names of all the terrorist groups from the foreigners dealing or supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine will be published. So he's, he's obviously issuing threats against anyone um, that, that dares to show support for the Russian campaign or is against um, the, the, the Nazi elements fighting inside Ukraine. But the interesting thing here, Mike, and we talked about it the other day, is when I was looking into this guy, and it's very difficult to find a lot of information on him, which immediately makes me slightly suspicious. I'd, I'd like Alex's opinion on this. But oddly, uh, on the 1st of November 2021, and he's the sole director of this company, he established a company called iHerb.com. Now, iHerb, most people will know this is right, a... Right, right. Vanessa, Vanessa, just yeah. let, me, let, me let me interrupt you here for, for one second. Yeah. So let's put, let's put this, this uh, filing details on screen at the moment because uh, he has set up a company called iHerb.com Limited. Uh, and as you mm -hmm. say, 1st of November 2021. I've got a couple of other little graphics here. So here is uh, him as the director from Companies House here uh, for iHerb.com Limited. And you can see that it's uh, it's Covent Garden, London is the registered address. He's a director, but you can see quite clearly on screen there that he is Ukrainian nationality uh, and country of residence is Ukraine. Uh, and when you look at what it does, the nature of the business uh, is set to wholesale of coffee, tea, cocoa and spices, wholesale of perfume and cosmetics, wholesale of pharmaceutical goods, uh, retail sale via mail order houses or via Internet. Now, it's very interesting that iHerb.com is an established website. It's been established for 25 years. This is mm -hmm. what it looks like. But if you look at the bottom of that page, it shows that iHerb.com is copyright 1997 to 2022 iHerb LLC. This is a US-based uh, partnership or local uh, limited liability corporation. So, so uh, my question to you is, why has why do you speculate? I mean, I appreciate that it is speculation, but why do you think he has decided to name a limited company in the UK after an established dot-com domain-based company, mail-order company that sells exactly the type of things that he lists on his uh, company's house registration? It's the same type of business, um, but he, yeah. he clearly has no connection to this iHerb company. Uh, and so what is he doing? Well, and also, why would somebody who's resident in Ukraine be establishing an, you know, an internet-based company, one assumes, in Covent Garden? Also, when I went to the um, satellite imagery of this area and, and I, you know, um, did the 360 degrees, 
Um, it appears to be a block of empty offices. And while there are boards showing potentially offices, um, offices to be rented by specific companies, there is no mention of this company. And the building does appear to be empty, apart from a couple of offices that have a, a desk and a, um, a vase of flowers on the desk or something like that. Um, so, again, we seem to be saying what, a, what could be um, a front company, um, the fact that they will accept payment um, via internet. So, and, and the other company he has, which I forgot to mention in the slides, he has a cyber, um, sorry, cryptocurrency company um, in Ukraine also. So there could be a connection there. It could be that he is able to funnel the funds through this company. And of course, because it was only established in November 2021, there are no accounts filed. And we, we have seen this multiple times where these companies are set up and they shut down before accounts must be filed because probably because, again, we're speculating because they've served their purpose and they're shut down before accounts have to be filed, which might reveal what they're doing or might raise questions. He is also the sole director, which is interesting. And I can't I couldn't find any information of any other employees. But very strange that a Ukrainian um, would have an office address in London um, dealing in goods that he seems to have absolutely no relation to from his um, professional profile and from his education. Uh, have you got any thoughts, Alex? I think we might have found a suitcase guy or analogy um, because 20 years ago when the uh, Russians were duking it out in Chechnya and just over the Georgian border in the Pankisi Gorge, that was the big casus belli just after 9-11, these um, ethnic Chechens in Georgia uh, using uh, Georgian territory as a base for rest and recuperations and restocking of jihadis. What you found then, and I actually witnessed this personally, you, I bumped into some of these guys, you'd find in that iteration of the, the war, it was a bunch of British Pakistani students. Uh, they were in that case, mainly studying information technology and medicine, who claimed to be on a year's uh, exchange or study program in Tbilisi, and who just happened to be enjoying camping out in the mountains. And then later on, through intelligence work, I found that this profile was quite characteristic of gentlemen who'd been tapped up in London by city gents, or at least arm's length, and who were sent out there. Well, of course, there was no UAV technology in those days, so they weren't drone jamming, but they were suitcase guys in the sense that they were tapping Russian satellite phones in the region and jamming them as well sometimes, because uh, 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 some of the figures, including Jokhar Dudayev, were assassinated by the Russians getting a lock on their sat phone signal. So this is all very redolent of that. The surname uh, of this gentleman, Al-Fayoumi, indicates, I think, Egyptian ancestry, not necessarily in his generation, because Fayoum is a city in Lower Egypt, but the orthography is French Levantine, so he may have his family may have spent some time in Syria or Lebanon. But no, the, the address as well, Covent Garden, suggests to me a boiler room of the kind that the late Gordon Bowden uh, specialised in unfolding. And of course, Bowden often claimed that at the bottom of that trail was Mossad. So uh, very dark stuff, but he does fit the profile for what I used to know as a, a suitcase guy 20 years ago, embedded with the local nutters. OK, thank you for that. Any thoughts? Uh, well, we've seen this sort of thing before. Um, I'm going to be talking at the, in a little bit about the BBC's information war. Um, it's very complex. It's designed to be so that it's not easily seen for the public as to what's going on. 
Do, do we believe this sort of stuff can happen? Yes, of course. Yes. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much for, for that, Vanessa. Let's move on to Ben Wallace. Uh, he has been mentioned uh, already, but uh, here he is in the Arctic uh, because we are very concerned about the Arctic at the moment. So Ben Wallace met his Norwegian counterpart uh, in the last day or two, and uh, they've been taking part in an exercise called Response 22. We've mentioned this uh, uh, NATO exercise already. Uh, Norwegian-led exercise with 35,000 troops from 28 par participant nations uh, and, uh, of course, six Royal Navy ships, uh, 2,000 UK personnel carrying out cold weather training in northern Norway. Um, so, uh, well, what was he getting excited about? Well, he was getting excited about the launch of this, uh, the UK's defence contribution to the High North. Uh, it's a new policy document. Um, and, uh, well, they're saying that this strategy sets out the UK's commitments to NATO uh, such as increasing UK training and operations in the area uh, with allies and international partners. The UK will also invest in research and development to fund the sustainable and modernised defence capability in the region. As part of the new strategy, the UK will maintain a periodic Royal Navy presence in the High North. Uh, the strategy also reinforces support across its Arctic allies to preserve the stability and security of the Arctic region. But what's really behind this? Well, let's look at, at Bell Wallace's introduction to this. The Arctic has historically been an area of low tension and we wish it to remain so. However, melting sea ice in the Arctic uh, brings threats as well as opportunities. Russia is taking an increasingly militarized approach to the region and China is supporting Russia's proposed Polar Silk Road uh, with a range of infrastructure and capabilities that have dual use potential. Uh, as the region becomes increasingly accessible, threats from elsewhere around the globe uh, could spill over into the Arctic. Uh, and Alex, uh, this whole business of dual use potential, this is this is Britain's new uh, integrated operating concept is dual use potential. We use civilian infrastructure for military purposes. There's no indication that I'm aware of that the Russians are doing the same. But of course, he tries to push that uh, that narrative. Uh, and uh, the Polar Silk Road uh, looks like a trading route. It doesn't look like a, a military uh, or a, a defensive or an, or an offensive uh, uh, infrastructure being built there. So so I don't know what your thoughts are on, on this, but uh, clearly the UK government has been getting concerned about uh, Russian activities in the polar region for quite a number of years now. It's a great game, only it's Russia pushing northwards to evade blockades rather than southward because of a combination of don't shoot me, but climate change, if you understand what I mean and don't mean by that, and also the stage of technology. <clears throat> That's um, the region has got uh, has got to. Uh, the Chinese are actually building, if I understand correctly, the world's largest Arctic port in record time in Russia. The whole city can't be a weapon, can it? A dual use, as I've seen from my years in counter-proliferation, is effectively a Western stick. It's part of what we what's now called the rules-based international order. It's uh, used as a term to sanction, well, first keep tabs on and then sanction trading companies and nations that in the Western parliaments, Anglo-American parliaments, attempt to evade blockades uh, on, uh, on, on, on weapons exports and the export of gyroscopes, for example, for nuclear programs. Um, the whole term, whenever I've spoken to technical people is is ambiguous because anything in the world can be used for peaceful and productive or destructive purposes and the more specialized technology it is the more that's true generally so that it, it does it does seem to me that britain ultimately or the deep state is concerned that russia is just going to be able to trade uh, directly with in the end canada north america or anywhere that it can get sea lanes out to from the arctic yeah I would say that makes uh, complete sense. If people haven't seen the building of this 
um, new maritime route, um, have a look on one of the video channels online and you can find some very good documentary information, including the use of some very impressive icebreakers. And nuclear powered icebreakers, in fact. Uh, well, look, the, the, the question that on everybody's lips has been uh, where, particularly in the United States, as we heard uh, uh, various allegations of special departments within the State Department, the Department of Defense, to decide on policy with respect to Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the question is, where's the policy coming from? So uh, let's have a look at this. This is a document from uh, 2019, uh, published by the RAND Group, uh, and it's called Extending Russia, uh, Competing from Advantageous Ground. Uh, as the U.S. national defense strategy recognizes, the, U the United States is currently locked in a great power competition with Russia. This report, they say, seeks to define areas uh, where the United States can compete to its own advantage. Uh, it examines Russian vulnerabilities and anxieties, analyzes potential policy options to exploit them, uh, and assesses the associated benefits, costs, and risks, as well as the likelihood of successful implementation. Um, so that was 2019, uh, but this has been brought back uh, to the surface by uh, this article, um, RAND report prescribed U.S. provocations against, uh, against Russia, predicted Russia uh, might retaliate in Ukraine. Um, and uh, so this is, uh, uh, Rick Sterling has written this. Uh, many of the steps uh, towards this war uh, were proposed apparently in this report. Um, so rather than trying to stay ahead or to improve the US domestically or to international or in international relations, the emphasis is on efforts and actions to undermine the designated adversary, which is Russia. Uh, and uh, the report, he says, continues, sorry, the report, he says, uh, notes that Russia has deep-seated anxieties about Western, well, let's just put that on screen. The report notes that Russia has deep-seated anxieties about Western inf interference and potential military attack. These anxieties are deemed to be a vulnerability to exploit. There's no mention of the cause of the Russian anxieties that they've been invaded multiple times and had 27 million deaths in World War II. Um, he goes on to highlight uh, that the RAND report lists many techniques and measures to provoke and threaten Russia. Some of the steps include repositioning bombers within easy striking range of key Russian strategic targets, deploying uh, additional tactical nuclear weapons in locations in Europe, Europe and Asia, increasing the US and allied naval forces posture and presence in Russia's operating areas, brackets Black Sea, uh, holding NATO war exercises on Russia's borders, withdrawing from the intermediate nuclear forces treaty. So this was uh, all suggestions from RAND in 2019. Uh, these and many other provocations, Sterling says, suggest that, suggested by RAND have in fact been implemented. For example, NATO conducted massive war exercises dubbed Defender 2021 right up to Russia's border. NATO has started patrolling the Black Sea uh, and engaged, engaging in provocative intrusions into Crimean waters. The US has withdrawn from the INF Treaty. Uh, as earlier indicated, the RAND report assesses the costs and benefits of various US actions. It considered a benefit of increased U.S. assistance to Ukraine results in the loss of Russian blood and resources. Speculating on the possibility of Russian troop presence in Ukraine, the report suggests that could become quite controversial at home as it did when Soviets invaded Af Afghanistan. Uh, and he goes on to say the, re the RAND report says increasing U.S. military aid would certainly drive up Russian costs, but doing so could also increase the loss of Ukrainian lives and territory or result in a disadvantageous peace settlements. So peace settlements are disadvantageous, Brian. So, so there we go. 
Well, I just wanted to add there that that all of the things the RAND report has talked about and have happened, we've reported on in great detail. We've said consistently that these activities are designed to provoke the Russians. Yes. So before I ask for a comment here, I just also want to uh, put this on screen. So this is uh, uh, this is SCSPI, which is a Chinese think tank. Uh, and they're talking about the uh, well, they're talking about the, the situation in the South China Sea and they publish a report called it's an annual report called the an incomplete report on US military activities in the South China Sea. Um, so China absolutely seeing the same type of strategies that, that the RAND report is talking about with respect to Russia being also applied to China. Um, so this is the South China Sea Strategic Situation Probing Initiative. Um, and uh, they have released their annual report as, as usual. Um, and they're talking about just the level of, of uh, US military uh, incursion into the South China Sea, for example. So of the 95 exercises uh, for which there is publicly available information, 81 of them involved not only countries that border the South China Sea, but those from outside the region, including Japan, UK, Australia, India, France, China, uh, and uh, so they're, but they're talking about, uh, you know, just huge numbers of, of, of huge amounts of activity, uh, extensive drills, new tactics as America aims to contain China, uh, but is faced with the rapid development of uh, the Chinese military. And uh, so 1,200 aerial close-in reconnaissance sorties, 419 ship days of maritime survey and surveillance, and spy ships in the South China Sea is what they're talking about. So the same tactics, Alex, um, and uh, are we to expect the same type of outcome at some point in the not too distant future? It does look rather look that way, doesn't it, Mike? Uh, the RAND Corporation is probably familiar to long-term viewers, but in a nutshell, it's an arm's length think tank for the US military. Uh, it thinks things aloud that wouldn't be thinkable within the beltway. It sits in a, in a more cozy uh, and quieter setting and just lets its boffins dream uh, how to evade mutually assured destruction and dream the, uh, the, the control of a new world. Uh, and, you know, I'm not being bombastic there. There are interviews and whole books about the Rand Corporation where its history is described quite ebulliently in those terms. They're quite proud of uh, of the record that they have. All these disadvantageous things for the for Russia and the West that the bean counters sort of dispassionately stack up there. There's a couple of things that they've missed, such as the deliberate importing of uh, head choppers and, uh, you know, the, the, the importing of people who uh, have no qualms, such as the local uh, population might have about setting up torture chambers in basements, but that would all be part of the strategy, wouldn't it? I mean, we see now from Mariupol footage of uh, you know torture chambers that have been found with uh, jump leads and chains and uh, all kinds of horrors, and you know very familiar from East Aleppo. Uh, but ultimately, the men who write these strategies, or an increasing number of women actually on board with them as well now, are fully cognizant that when you are talking about hemming in Russia more and more, you're actually also talking about looking the other way while some real nasties do your dirty work for you. Yes. Uh, Vanessa, briefly, any thoughts on that? No, although, because um, I'm just sort of putting um, a, a rather long article together right now showing the, the lead up to what happened and how perhaps COVID was used not only as a portal to um, the Great Reset, but also a portal to war against Russia. Um, and going back to, I think it was 2016 or 17, there was a release of documents, Stratcom 
NATO Ukraine interlops um, showing the potential for a color revolution in Russia. And of course, I mean, this all continues from Brzezinski's in 1997, the great chessboard, et cetera, et cetera. So this war has been coming for some time and, and these plans have been set in stone for a number of years also. And I think that the trigger was um, the winning of the war in Syria uh, and Russia being propelled suddenly to the superpower that, that is the nemesis of the US and what they'd been dreading and what they'd been trying to um, prevent uh, for, for, for decades. So, yeah, I mean, really not surprising. And the RAND is, is really just repeating what came before. But of course, the timing is very interesting just before COVID kicked in in March 2020. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, uh, let's just very briefly mention that uh, uh, sanctions uh, continue to bite. So now Finland has suspended uh, rail traffic uh, with Russia. And so obviously, the people and goods. Uh, not getting into Russia or vice versa from Finland at the moment. Uh, but uh, Vanessa alluded to this earlier, Alex, uh, this is the apparent arrest of the uh, Orthodox priests in uh, in Ukraine. This is in the town of Smela or in Russian Smela in Cherkasy region. And uh, the, the one at the back in red is an acolyte. The one at the front being arrested has got the full priestly garb on. Um, we don't know what the arrest is for, but it seems to be that the SBU, the intelligence services behind it, I don't think anyone else would authorise it. We have seen other scenes where churchgoers uh, of the same church, the um, uh, the Moscow Patriarchy in Ukraine, effectively the largest church in the country, churchgoers in that church have been turfed out in the snow uh, in the middle of a service. And of course, it would be claimed by the SBU that these priests are involved in political machinations. Uh, but it's not the kind of thing that you have seen in the region again before, even when Armenia and Azerbaijan have fought. Uh, people haven't been turfed out of, of places of worship while meetings have been going on. Um, what, the background to this is that to this day, with the exception of a small a smaller so-called Ukrainian Orthodox Church that has little recognition and, and, and little membership. Most Eastern Orthodox Ukrainians, so that's the bulk of the country, belong to a church which on paper is the Moscow Patriarchy. Only since 2018, it's been self-governing, autocephalous as they call it in theology. And this was celebrated only last year while I was in Ukraine with the World Patriarch in Constantinople, a rather compromised pro-CIA figure coming and posing alongside the new uh, autocephalous head of the Ukrainian church. But this is not enough for the current Ukrainian authorities. And they are actually considering in the Rada at the moment, the Verkhovna Rada, the parliament, whether to outlaw the majority church in the country, not to decree that its goods belong to the state and that it has to have a new head and a new constitution. They are planning to outlaw the equivalent of the Church of England. Uh, this doesn't seem to be getting any coverage in the West, as I'm aware of. Mm. Horrific, nevertheless. Uh, well, perhaps we could draw people's attention back to uh, media in the UK. Um, UK Column News has warned over several years now of the activities of, of the BBC's charity, BBC Media Action. I want to bring the viewer um, back onto that subject to have a look at what we think is uh, going on in the background. Um, but let's have a look at how BBC Media Action present themselves. It's all very uh, glossy, upbeat images of good people all over the world working to install uh, democracy into whatever country it is. And of course, BBC Media Action working very strongly in Africa. 
uh, as well as other countries in the Middle East, and as we've already pointed out, in Ukraine itself to help set up the state media. So here's BBC Media Action. It's talking about uh, institutional partnerships. And uh, if we get in some of the text, uh, at the present time, BBC Media Action is boasting of their relationship with the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO. We'll be coming on to them in a minute. The Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, Global Affairs Canada, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and more. And BBC Media Action says without them, we couldn't carry on our important work, which informs, connects and inspires people to change their lives for the better. Well, of course, it isn't about people changing their lives for the better, because what BBC Media Action is really doing is changing whole societies to produce them in line with the model that the BBC wants to promote. But if we just uh, take a little bit of this apart, and we go first of all to that Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, if we look at a key player uh, here, the Director General, a lady, um, what we can see is that the whole basis of her politics is Swedish social democrat politics, sustainable and global development, and then we've got some connection with the World Bank growth and development plans and policy. So when the when BBC Media Action is casually saying it's funded by these people, I think it's reasonable to say, well, in that case, the people who are providing the money are also calling the shots on what the policy is going to be and what they're going to pay for. So this is some charity, it has to be said. If we have a look at this one, this is Global Affairs Canada. And what do they say about themselves? Well, it says, we define, shape and advance Canada's interests and values in a complex global environment. So this is nothing to do with helping people in Africa, for example, per se, or in Ukraine. This is to do with promoting Canada's political interests. And yet this is being done through an organization which claims it is a charity, BBC Media Action. But if we come straight to the meat of the matter, we've got to look at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. And if you're not aware of what they do, well, this is their words. We pursue our national interests and, pro and project the UK as a force for good in the world. We promote the interests of British citizens, safeguard the UK's security, defend our values, reduce poverty, and tackle global challenges with our international partners. Um, so the UK is a force for good, Mike. I think we've shown that in the news today, or yes. maybe not, as you'd say to me. Mm. So let's have a look at the uh, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. And many people are not aware of the complexity of this organization. If we think this is simply part of UK civil service, it is much more complex than, than that. And of course, with, with the complexity becomes the opaque nature. So if you have a look at their website, it says very clearly that they work with 12 agencies and public bodies. I'm going to have a look at these in a little bit of detail. But the first thing we can say is that BBC Media Action, although they receive funding from FCDO, is not mentioned in this list. And I think this is very significant uh, because what is happening here is that a charity is being used 
as the hidden tool of the British state. Um, yeah, so they've mentioned the BBC World Service. So there's no reason why they couldn't mention BBC Media Action. Uh, I don't think so, Mike, apart from the fact it's a charity. Alex, um, we're, we're, we're going to have a look at each one of these in a little bit of detail. But of course, BBC World Service is tightly tied in with the British state. So that's why I think the BBC World Service is there, but BBC Media Action is a charity, so they've con conveniently left it out. It's odd because if you uh, look at that list, it says that the FCDO works with 12 agencies. They're deliberately obfuscating the difference between executive agencies directly subordinated to the Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs, such as GCHQ and MI6 that they name down the bottom, and agencies that they are partnering with. It's the global public-private partnership that Ian Davies likes to speak about. The blob is subsuming more and more. By the way, Global Affairs Canada is nothing more or less, Brian, than the trendy new name for the Canadian Foreign Office. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Well, the sharp-eyed viewer might have noticed that the executive agency for the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office was no less than Wilton Park. And if you don't know what Wilton Park is about, I suggest you get on their website. This was what I was um, confronted with this morning, preparing the children an armed conflict agenda for the future. I read that several times thinking to myself, my goodness, they're openly admitting where they're heading on this. Um, so do you understand that Wilton Park seems to have this immense power as the executive agency of the Foreign Commonwealth Office? Well, many people don't. Um, Foreign Commonwealth Office here uh, promoting the chair of Wilton Park, Gisela Stewart, uh, who started on the 1st of October 2018. And if we have a look at more detail here, it says that the Foreign Commonwealth Office pleased to announce, <coughs> excuse me, the appointment of Gazelle Stewart as new chair. Um, she replaces the outgoing chair, Ian Ferguson. And then it goes on to talk about other positions that she holds, the chair of Change Britain, the director of the Henry Jackson Society, and member of the Global Strategy Forum Advisory Board. So who is actually running this part of the government? Are we dealing with the civil service or are we now into a much deeper and darker um, collective of people? I think it's the latter. And if we look at the Global Strategy uh, Forum and its advisory board, well, here she is, but um, we've got um, a familiar figure there um, standing from, uh, from uh, UK column reports of earlier times, that's no less than oh, the king. Oh, it's, uh, it's King King Mark. King Mark Sedwell. Yes. Um, he's looking very happy as a lord now. And of course, he's deep into the power of these people. I've just taken a couple of the people mentioned on the advisory board to show the sort of scope. But we've got General Sir Richard Barons, KCB, who served as commander of the Joint Forces Command until April uh, 2016. And they talk about the fact he was commanding billions worth of, of UK military forces and special ops forces. But when we get to this man, it becomes very interesting indeed. Sir Evelyn de Rothschild, uh, currently chairman of EL Rothschild. Now, this man, I believe, is in his 90s. Uh, there, there don't seem to be many pictures of him as an, as an, uh, an old man, um, but fascinating mix of deep bankers with retired military and politicians. 
Alex, you had your hand up. You're, I think, yes. wanting to... Keep, keep that slide on just for a moment, because you there have global Britain in a nutshell. You have the banking layer ordering, well, for a start, European military unification, hence Barron's. Uh, our long-term viewers will know about what was going on in, in that year of Brexit. Uh, but Alex, uh, Bar sorry, up. Alex, I just want to mention, of course, Barron's very close to uh, Integrity Initiative. Uh, Barron's very close to... Exactly. To, right. 2016 to 2018, that was what the game was, reimagining Britain's continental politics. And to the left, you have Gisela Stewart, who was the chair of the official and completely captured uh, Brexit vote campaign, Vote Leave, beloved of the strategists because she was A, a German, and B, a, a Labour member of parliament, so not your stereotypical Tory boy. And on the left, of course, you have, whose star was no longer in the ascendant by here, by this time, uh, King Mark Sedwell. So the two on the left, Stewart and Sedwell, are, above all, the architect of Britain reinventing itself at deep state level from being a member of the EU to having a finger in those pies, but going its own way. You know, so that the whole thing is there, uh, the, the whole policy of, well, it's, it's gone on for decades before that, but we don't need our own military anymore. Uh, we don't need actually to be in the EU. Uh, we, we define things. We set things at a deep think tank level. So we're way beyond the civil service as a uh, a political or non-political organisation, something very different is actually driving uh, British government and policy here. And it's certainly not elected MPs that are producing this policy. So if we delve through this uh, as quickly as we can to give viewers and listeners some substance, um, next down on the list, we had the British Council. Uh, what do they say about themselves? Well, it's the UK's International Organisation for Cultural Relations and Educational Opportunities. We build connections, understanding and trust between people in the UK and other countries through arts and culture. And look at the figures that they start talking about. In 2019-2020, we reached over 75 million people directly and 758 million people overall, including online broadcasts and publications. So this is about a media war. And uh, the British Council that we've mentioned before, Mike, is right in the middle of it. Uh, we've got the Commonwealth Scholarship Commission in the UK. Uh, well, this is a fascinating one because apparently uh, it provides the main UK government scholarship scheme led by international development objectives. I've called these people future leaders. You'll see, see why as we go through. But um, who actually chose them? And what are the values that are going to be instilled in these young people? So voting, well, that's long gone because now we've got place people coming in. Uh, if we move on to the next one, we've got Great Britain China Centre. Well, that's pretty obvious, really. Executive non-department public body, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, established to support UK-China relations. China's an enemy. No, it's a friend. We're not too sure at the moment. But uh, in the middle of the FCDO, we've got this little organisation doing its business. And then we're back on to future leaders because we've got the Marshall Aid Commemorative Commission. And what is it doing is providing scholarships uh, for young Americans of high ability to study for a graduate degree in the United Kingdom. Up to 50 scholars are selected each year to study at graduate level. So these are the future leaders being driven straight into the heart of British government and policy. The voter 
doesn't even know these organizations exist. And uh, if we add a bit more to this, uh, well, there's a very young Boris Johnson, um, clearly part of the program, mm. or at least supporting the program. And what do they say here? As future leaders with a lasting understanding of British society, martial scholars strengthen the enduring relationship between British and American people. So I'm saying again, uh, who is selecting and grooming these young people? But these are nothing, these people are nothing to do with a democratic process. These are to do with uh, people put in positions of power. Alex, it's very interesting and it's very obvious as you go through this list that democracy no longer exists in UK. We have a very different form of government. It's the capture not just of both mainstream parties, which is common through the Western world now, but the capture of both streams of thought. Uh, we covered a moment ago that the official f fake Brexit campaign is involved in these agencies, but then you see that the British Council uh, is also involved. They're the most uh, pro-EU cheerleading group uh, that there is in the British soft power establishment. They've been run by Neil Kinnock. Uh, everyone knows about his position on the EU. And his son, Stephen, uh, was the British Council's man in St. Petersburg in the 90s. And even before Putin's time, Kinnock was out on his ear. He was declared persona non grata. And the British establishment, the British Council was subsequently in the mid-2000s again in another city, Yekaterinburg, accused of subversion and espionage. So it doesn't really matter whether you vote for so-called Brexit or Remain really, which was the biggest question of the last decade for those with short memories or overshadowed by the new crises. That was the, the question of the decade, to leave or to, to remain. Uh, doesn't really matter uh, because the, the minds of the, uh, the both wings of leaders have been stitched up. Likewise, the minds of the Americans, you know, so the State Department does this in Europe as well. But so does Britain through Chevening and Marshall Scholars. All of these things are, should we say, poor man's round table, that they're all inspired by and a, and a pale copy of the original and best, the Rhodes Scholarships. They all go back to the City of London uh, top table, deciding that the Americans and the Continentals must take their lead from Britain. OK, th thank you for that, Alex. And of course, the power of these people has been unleashed with devastating effect on Ukraine. Let's finish uh, the list. Here's the Westminster Foundation for Democracy. Um, uh, is the UK body, public body dedicated to strengthening democracy around the world. So we've got the hypocrisy. We have no democracy due to organisations like the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, um, but they are changing the world. This I found extraordinary, a 2020 framework agreement drawn up by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in consultation with the foundation itself. And it sets out a broad framework within which the um, uh, Westminster Foundation will operate. But have a look at this. It says this document sets out how they will operate, but it does not convey any legal powers or responsibilities. And despite being referred to as an agreement, it is not intended to be legally binding or legally effective in any way. So it's signed. It's a signed document by both parties. But then we're told, well, don't worry about it because it's it's not legally binding. What what do you make of this, Alex? Well, the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, which, if memory serves, was found set up exactly 40 years ago or just a little more at the end of the Cold War, uh, was Britain's answer to what the CIA had done a bit previously by setting up the National Endowment for Democracy. 
from the mid 70s onwards, you couldn't play the dirty game full on anymore as Britain or America. You couldn't say our spooks are going to fund the opposition and, and throw out uh, a president, a democratically elected president, because it's all about our democracy. So better throw that in democratically elected presidents could, could get thrown out in a coup. By the mid 70s, the, the new strategy was the NED in Washington and the WFT in Whitehall would be an arm's length puppet. And that's why there's no legally binding agreement, because this is a case of a bit like the Rand Corporation in the military world. Would you mind awfully thinking out these thoughts for us and doing the doing the donkey work so that we don't have to be seen doing it ourselves? Yeah. OK, well, let's finish it off uh, pretty quickly. BBC World Service. Well, we mentioned them uh, at the start, but we're also going to say again, remember that BBC Media Action is not mentioned Here's your Achieving Scholarship Programme, which you've just mentioned, Alex. Uh, international scholarship funded by the British Foreign Commonwealth Office and lets foreign students with leadership qualities study at universities in the United Kingdom. So the question is, who selects and grooms these future leaders? We have no idea who these people are. They're not visible to the, um, to the ordinary person in UK, and yet they are now taking part in government. Uh, we've got the FCDO services is operating commercially as a trading fund to deliver secure trusted services. Mm -hmm. Not sure what you make of that one, Mike. I wasn't able to get too deep into it, but I found the use of trading fund interesting when we are supposedly dealing with the civil service. Mm. And uh, if we finish off, we've got government communications headquarters and we've also got the Secret Intelligence Service. Well, GCHQ, if you look at their website, they're more interested in the LGBTQ++ agenda than anything else. Uh, but if we look at uh, MI6, they're reassuring us that uh, they're helping to make UK a safer and more prosperous place. And here we've got, of course, the World Service tied in, but not BBC Media Action. So we're going to suggest to our audience today that if we look at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, we've no longer got a working civil service. We've got a globalist, a globalistic uh, form of government running um, in front of our very eyes. But let's just finish the segment by saying, how does the BBC uh, see itself? And uh, here is BBC Media in Action. They were boasting on their website, or they are boasting, about social events, and there are several ways in which you can help us transform lives in some of the poorest, hardest to reach parts of the world. Remember that statement, poorest. Uh, this is what they're on about, the BBC Correspondence Charity Dinner. Uh, let's just have a look at this very brief film clip to see what the great and the good in the BBC get up to.
It's a pity we didn't book our table. Uh, well, let me just get this one on screen, Mike. But there they are, the lovies in their DJs, quaffing the wine and the food at great expense and trying to tell the public in UK that they're there to protect the poor. Worldwide disgraceful hypocrisy. But this is the meat of it. If you want a table, prices start from 3500 uh, for a table of eight, but you do get two BBC correspondents. I believe you can throw them away at the end of the meal, but they do come with the table. I just found this whole thing deeply offensive as we look at how the BBC has helped ramp up the violence and the war in Ukraine, and we have an organization claiming to be a charity. Yes. Okay, well, let's let's move on very quickly. Uh, just, just a quick reminder about uh, the online safety bill, because uh, this was tweeted out by Silky Carlo a couple of days ago. Even more alarming is that Nadine Dorry's online safety bill is going to put an on, put online censorship uh, like this on steroids. It will be state mandated. Take a moment to consider what else uh, would qualify under nebulous banner of harm during the peak of the pandemic. Uh, and uh, Nadine Dorries replied to Silky Carlo saying, this is nonsense. You're either misunderstanding or misrepresenting the bill. Online platforms have all the power they want right now. The online safety bill uh, puts in place protections for democratic content and stops uh, West Coast engineers removing slash taking down legitimate content. Now, who's talking nonsense here? Clearly, Nadine Dorries. Uh, maybe she hasn't read her own bill. Uh, but Alex, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because uh, she is suggesting that uh, you know uh, online platforms no longer the say is taken away from them, uh, and of course she's. Uh, talking about protections being put in place for democratic content and so on. Um, but the, the key point that we need to drum home here, and the reason that Silky Carlo is right in what she says, is because of this co undefined concept of harmful but legal, um, or legal but harmful, however you want to put it. Um, and we were talking on Monday about the fact that, uh, that that definition is not in the primary legislation. It will not be debated by... Uh, members of Parliament, while that goes through Parliament, uh, that will be defined uh, after the fact uh, in secondary legislation. Uh, and we were talking about on Monday the fact that uh, that there will now be uh, additional safeguards in inverted commas to give Parliament an opportunity to uh, scrutinise this secondary legislation. Um, and while that's a step forward, it's not a big step forward. It doesn't really take the danger away from this. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on this use of secondary legislation to define something which is so key and core to the primary legislation uh, and which therefore doesn't get debated during the during the, the progress through Parliament of that primary legislation. This is what Lord Hewitt of Berry wrote about a hundred years ago in his book The New Despotism about the growth of secondary legislation uh, also known in Britain and America as ad administrative law. And uh, he wrote, uh, and Philip Hamburger has written recently from America on the same theme with his book, Is Administrative Law Unlawful?, that it was uh, repugnant to the common law. It's the worst of continental Marxist thinking, and it has pervaded from the left to the so-called right of the British establishment now, from uh, the SNP, the Liberal Democrats, the Labour Party, and the Conservatives. Uh, there, there seems to be no opposition to that. And Nadine Doris, bless her, you know, she's my parents' constituency MP. She uh, She's not from 
the area, but she's sort of the, the typical well-meaning Middle England lady is, is how she's thought of and represents a leafy constituency. But the unexamined assumption that the root of this, which comes to the fore in that uh, quote tweet of hers, is that if the state is given powers to define, it will do a spiffing job because there's no malicious people in the state. So if the problem is these Yabu sucks Marxists on the West Coast, well, give it to our Marxists and they'll make a better fist of it. There's no more sophistication uh, to it than that. And even though in an increasing number of our parliamentarians are lawyers, they seem not to have had the basics at that law school about who guarantees and safeguards liberty, the state or the individual. Uh, well, uh, liberty increasingly not being safeguarded and, uh, well, children's health defence here, uh, things get serious. Dutch critic arrested. So uh, we were talking also on Monday about uh, the French lawyer that from that was taking part in the Fulmic uh, hearings being arrested in France. Uh, this is uh, Willem Engel, uh, a scientist and uh, this is, uh, children's health defence saying this scientist and one of the most prominent critics against disproportionality of the measures against the so-called corona pandemic in the Netherlands, uh, in addition to his own website, which publishes information that critically examines and questions the narrative of the pandemic. He also established a reputation as an activist on the streets, uh, as well as in the courtroom. Um, and uh, so uh, on March the 16th, he was uh, suddenly arrested uh, on the open streets and handcuffed. Uh, what exactly he's accused of uh, doesn't seem to be clear. Uh, it surprised him. Uh, and his uh, colleague who was with him uh, documented the event on video and so on. So uh, the uh, the arrests continue. Um, don't know what your thoughts are. I, I, I think they're going to continue. They're going to grow because to tell the truth, Mike, is becoming increasingly dangerous for the state. The state now putting billions of pounds in the UK, in the US, in the West uh, into a propaganda machine. If you stand up and challenge that, you are a direct threat to the state. So I think, unfortunately, we're going to see more of this. Alex? Willem Engel's arrest has shocked even the most jaded of Dutch freedom campaigners and alternative media people. And the reason is not just the being plucked off the streets in broad daylight without warning, but also because of the surfacing of uh, a, a real old-fashioned uh, scumbag confession video. Uh, in which uh, it's been subtitled, I think it was audio only originally, uh, in which a man whose name is freely floating around says, well, I didn't like the look of this Engel, so I colluded with friendly lawyers and friendly media people, and they said, well, we can rack up a case for incitement to hatred if you just engage with him by reactivating a dormant Twitter account of yours and ask him uh, to put some outrageous things to him and see what he posts in response, then we can collect that as material for a completely disingenuous charge by the public prosecutor of incitement. And again, the worst of the continental system, uh, the basis of it is the idea that the, the, the state lawyers are completely fair-minded public servants. And if they think something is incitement to hatred, they must be telling the truth. It's the Scottish Crown Office model in, in, in British terms. Um, and so he's now sitting and rotting in pretrial detention, which isn't completely open-ended, but uh, down the road in Belgium it is. You can be held for years in continental jurisdictions uh, while the state decides whether you did something naughty or not. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and there are options to help us out there. Um, or you could uh, support us uh, by picking something up from the shop. Uh, but if you do see our material on the various platforms, uh, please feel free to share that as well. Excellent. Well, staying on the subject of health, we're going to invite Debbie Evans to come on screen. And Debbie, you have been warning and warning 
over the uh, past weeks that uh, under the uh, smokescreen of Ukraine and all matters to do with the war in, <coughs> excuse me, the war in Ukraine, people need to be very, very vigilant as to what's been happening with healthcare and indeed within the NHS. And uh, you've got for us to kick off um, a video clip of the NHS England board meeting. Before we play it, um, what caught your attention about this clip? Um, well, the whole board meet, the board meeting actually was only put up this morning, so it's very, very fresh. But I think what you'll see from the clip that we're about to see is another fusion of USA and NHS and the very worrying developments that are going on around transformation, you know, transformation of the MHRA, transformation of the NHS. What does this actually mean for us? in the UK and you know while we're talking about everything else we mustn't forget that there have been over 300,000 spring boosters already delivered we've got elderly in care homes that still aren't being allowed to be visited by their relatives we've got hospitals overwhelmed as we keep hearing on the news with rising covid cases we've got care workers that haven't been able to get their jobs back despite the mandate for vaccination being dropped We've also got families locked out of the NHS, unable to visit their relatives, and loads of new vaccines and monoclonals coming down the line. So while everything else is going on around us in the world, we must remember that whilst all of that is happening, there's an awful lot happening in plain sight, right in front of our eyes. Okay, well, we're going to play a very, very short clip of this NHS uh, England board meeting, which I think only went, went up on the internet this morning or late last night. Um, it's June Rain we're mainly focusing on, who was part of this particular discussion. But listen to what the gentleman says who introduces uh, June Rain. Let's uh, see what was said. Incredibly proud of the team and all of us and how the NHS and NICE have shown global leadership with the development of our pilot programme there. So to finish, let's be frank, a lot has been done, but there's a lot more to do. By working with organisations represented here with the frontline teams who work every single day with patients, with industry, with government, and many, many more, I'm confident that the NHS will continue to be commercially astute, pro-innovation health system that delivers value for the taxpayers, and does the very, very best for patients to improve their care and treatment. Thank you. Blake, thank you very much. That, that did not disappoint, um, just, just, just saying. <laughs> um, uh, June, uh, June Rain, um, the, the CEO of MHRA. Um, it, uh, yes, you are here, there you are. Um, it, it's all your, the stage is yours. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tim, and good afternoon, everyone. As the UK's independent regulator, the MHRA is wholly committed to supporting the success of the life sciences vision in the NHS and to realising the full potential of this amazing vision as an enabling regulator, no longer a watchdog. And I'll highlight briefly three main ways. First, in terms of accelerating access to innovative products via our end-to-end -end integrated pathway, the Innovative Licensing and Access Pathway, which is attracting huge interest and is already delivering via the target development profiles that we're co-honing with NICE and our partner organisations. 
Secondly and importantly, safety, our first priority, will be enhanced using real-world evidence, new tools, methodologies, and importantly, putting patients and their perspectives at the very centre. And thirdly, in supporting the ongoing evolution of our clinical trials regulatory framework, which we are about to enhance to take full advantage of our new freedoms and to do so for medicines and medical devices. We are determined to operate in partnership with the NHS as a learning organisation and to be a full partnership partner in everything the NHS aspires to do. I'll finally just say huge gratitude to you, Lord Prior David, because you were instrumental in helping us start this transformative journey and I'm enormously grateful to you. June, thank you so much. Terrific. Um, we're in the home stretch now. Sam Roberts, um, uh, the CEO of Nice, and um, and and and. So we've got a wonderful American voice in there, but of course the gentleman that introduced uh, June Rain, what was he talking about? He was talking about commercial activity in the NHS. He was talking about uh, value for money. He's talking about money. He's not talking about protecting people in the NHS and treating people who need health treatment. The thing that jumped out at me was she was talking about the MHRA being an enabling organization and not a watchdog. Well, uh, Debbie, over to you. What's your reply to Mike's point? Yeah, that jumped out at me as well. Um, all of a sudden, we're no longer a, a watchdog. And, and you know, going back to um, some, uh, Dr. Matthew Ferris, you know, he's from Massachusetts, um, Harvard. Um, he's also now fusing uh, the NHS with NHSX. But my question to, to him would be, would this, this transformation directorate that he's heading, is this going to be redesigning all, all of the NHS on this massive great scale? Is this the new health and care bill, which by the way is in its third stage in the Lords, so pretty close to, to passing now. And, and June Rain, you know, the, the, three, the three points that she highlighted, acceleration to innovative products, that means where's the safety data? Don't think there is any. Um, she was putting patients at the head or at the centre of safety. I don't see that anywhere, to be honest. So I think that's disinformation. And then she was talking about the evolution of clinical trials. Well, that clearly is what Mike's been talking about with the 100 day mission. So now, yes, Mike, you're absolutely right. They're, they're no longer uh, a watchdog. They are enabling, uh, uh, well, I don't quite know what they're doing. This is life sciences on steroids. This is the UK's vision of the future. We are going to be the global life sciences power. And it was absolutely terrifying, I think, what she said. And equally, where we see this fusion of NHSX, and we've already heard Alex mention Mossad once. And I believe if we look at Nicole Junkerman with regards to NHSX, we could see that there's some Mossad connections there. So this is all very, very scary. And it's happening now right in front of our eyes. Uh, Debbie, thank you for that. Well, just for our, our viewers, let's bring digital health on screen. We've got a picture of Dr. Timothy Ferris here with that uh, lovely American voice. And uh, what does the text say? Well, he'll lead the organization's new transformation directorate, bringing together NHSE, 
uh, slash I operational improvement team and NHSX. So everything is changing again. It becomes even more uh, opaque. And um, where's he come from? Well, he was not for profits, uh, sorry, not for profit Massachusetts General Physicians Organization and a professor at the Harvard Medical School, which I think you mentioned, also founded the Center for Population Health. Uh, we've more work to do on that. But um, why an American? Well, I think we get clues from having a look at some of the material he's produced. You haven't been able to see these um, shots yet, Debbie, but uh, I found them earlier this morning. Um, if we have a look at what this man is about, it's all to do with data and statistics, but the real undertone is money. It's cutting costs and increasing profits. So was the public ever told that the NHS has been put in the hands of an American? No, but if you watch the board meetings, you're going to discover that. And let's follow that segment up with something else which has been of great concern to you. And this is what the wealth health, sorry, the World Health Organization has got planned. Um, let's look at the video clip and then I'll bring you back on, Debbie. The World Health Assembly will convene at the end of this month uh, with Dr. Tedros uh, for only the second time in its history in an extraordinary meeting to consider one issue, one agenda item, and one agenda item only, and that is the, the need uh, for and the merits of uh, concluding a new agreement or framework treaty convention uh, that would allow the world to react uh, collectively in preparedness and response to, to the next uh, pandemic. I think it's a, a very, very important moment in the history of global uh, public health, a generational moment to consider the future of pandemic preparedness and response. While fighting the pandemic now, we need to prepare for the long term. And that's why, um, as Mike said, we are now going to have a special session of the World Health Assembly at the end of this month to discuss uh, the need for a pandemic uh, treaty. If this COVID pandemic cannot be a catalyst for change, it's very difficult to understand what could be actually uh, a catalyst. Uh, so yeah, that's why um, the treaty, uh, the discussion or the assembly uh, to discuss the treaty is, is very timely, very crucial. And I hope the world will, will agree to have uh, um, a treaty or agreement that can help us to fight the next pandemic in a better, in a better way. So, Debbie, what's your concern? What are you seeing as the threat in this, uh, in the words of those two, two uh, men? Well, I think what we need to, to remember, too, is that the World Health Assembly is the decision making body of the World Health Organization. And all this started off with something called the Global Preparedness Board, which includes the likes of Fauci, uh, Sir Jeremy Farrer, uh, the past Prime Minister of Norway and representation from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And the aim of this WHO pandemic treaty, and I'll read it out, is to identify the most urgent needs and actions required to accelerate preparedness for health emergencies, focusing, focusing on in particular biological risks manifesting as epidemics and pandemics. Now, this is using an all-in-one all government approach. So basically, this is supranational law. This will over, override everything that we have nationally 
so that if the World Health Organization wished to call a pandemic or an epidemic, it means that 193 governments which have signed up to this international treaty will all have to act in unison, go into lockdowns, mandate different kinds of medications, um, recommend uh, vaccinations, even compulsorily mandate them. This, this is giving the World Health Organization huge powers and it's taking away sovereignty from every single nation that's actually signed up to it. And I would like to highlight actually the um, World Council for Health with our wonderful Dr. Tess Laurie, because they have actually written an open letter against this, because this is very, very dangerous. This means that basically we are ruled by the WHO, who of course are in partnership with the United Nations. So I would, uh, I would really appreciate if everybody could go and have a look at the World Council for Health and see the open letter that, that all of these doctors have written um, against this WH pan WHO pandemic treaty, because you know we're on a timeline now, and the timeline is, is that we had two big documents, which I'm sure we'll talk about, a world at risk and a world in disorder, by oh, the Debbie, Global Preparedness Board. Sorry, let's, no, let's, sorry to interject there. Let's just uh, bring that up on screen. I did prepare a, um, a graphic here, which people can freeze and check it. Um, but uh, what you're now starting to talk about uh, we've got on screen. So 2019, a world of risk, 2020, a world of disorder. And then you've put uh, the extra detail down at the bottom. So the 1st of December 2021, a draft agreement. 1st of March 2022, the first meeting. August 22, the second meeting. 2023, the progress report. And 2024, full adoption. So they're moving this forward at some speed. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's going very, very quickly. And of course, everyone's talking about Ukraine and Russia and the geopolitical situation. And maybe not enough attention is being brought to the WHO Pandemic Preparedness Treaty, which I hope now that we have brought attention to. And you know, Dr. Astrid Stuckelberger um, is talking about this a lot, as is the wonderful Dr. Tess Laurie. So I just urge everyone to keep an eye on on who and how it will affect us here in the uk because it's coming very very quickly yeah i'm going to encourage all of our audience to stay up to speed with these developments so yes the situation sorry yes the situation in ukraine is very serious and it's very important but we've got to stay very aware of what's happening under the surface i know you had some other material to cover we're tight for time debbie so we're just going to move on to the subject of food. Thank yeah, you. Well, because the question is, uh, what is going to happen uh, with the food supplies in the coming months and so on? Um, here is uh, Kristalina Georgieva, who's from the International Monetary Fund, who uh, was uh, saying yesterday, uh, when food prices jump and poor people cannot feed their families, uh, they will be on the streets. Uh, one thing we know about trouble in one place, it travels, it doesn't stay there. And she was mainly talking about the Middle East, actually, that, that this is going to be probably the, the, the place where we start to see uh, food issues soonest. Um, but uh, moving on from that, this is uh, the wonderful Barbie, Barbara Woodward, who's the UK's ambassador to the United Nations. And she was uh, also speaking uh, in the UN Security Council yesterday. 
civilians remain without food, water and electricity. She's talking about Ukraine, of course. People are reportedly resorting to drinking not just snow, but sewage water to survive. Uh, as David Beasley said, we now risk famine, destabilization, and we risk having to take food from hungry children for starving children. Uh, Russia's appetite for war is taking food off the world's table. Um, so it's all Russia's fault. But she did actually <laughs> concede during her speech uh, that global commodity prices were already on the rise before the invasion. Um, so, but the question is, What's Britain doing uh, to guarantee food security in the UK? Well, of course, we are guaranteeing food security in the UK by shutting, dude, shutting down our food production capabilities. This is Michael Gove speaking in mid-2019. Uh, and he said, as we leave the EU, we have a, an historic opportunity to deliver a farming policy which works for the whole industry. Uh, and of course, he was launching uh, this concept of sustainable farming. Uh, and uh, so environmental land management scheme will incentivize uh, sustainable farming practices, create habitats for nature recovery and establish new woodland to help tackle climate change. Uh, direct payments will be reduced fairly starting from the 2021 basic payment scheme year with the money release being used to fund new grants and scheme to boost farmers productivity and reward environmental improvement. Well, the productivity that they're talking about boosting is productivity in, in rewilding uh, the, the land that has been uh, managed by farming farmers for a thousand years or so. So uh, they were talking about the sustainable farming incentive, lo local nature recovery and landscape recovery. And uh, getting back to Gove, he said uh, the UK is 30 to 40 years away from fundamental, fundamental eradication of soil fertility, which aside from the climate change story, this soil fertility story is the one which is driving this to a large degree. And of course, this was uh, shown in many studies to be a complete load of nonsense. So bringing you up to date then, uh, George Eustace uh, has uh, said that uh, what we're moving to is to a more generous set of incentives for farmers doing the right thing. Um, so they will be given uh, taxpayers money to rewild their land. Um, and uh, this will lead to vast tracts of land being newly managed to conserve species, provide habitats for wildlife and restore health to rivers and streams. Uh, bids are being invited for 10 to 15 pilot projects, each covering at least 500 hectares and up to 5,000 hectares to, to a total approximate uh, 10,000 hectares in the first two year phase. Uh, about 10 times the size of Richmond Park in London is what the government says. Uh, these pilots uh, could involve full rewilding or other forms of management that focus on species recovery and wildlife habitats. By 2024, the government says, they aim to have up to 300,000 hectares of England covered by such landscape recovery projects, an area roughly the size of Lancashire. Um, so that, of course, is going to contribute hugely to food production at a time where we're seeing food supplies and food supply chains being significantly disrupted and costs going through the roof. And of course, one of the major areas where costs are going through the roof is with respect to nitrogen fertilizer. And uh, so the government has apparently announced steps to assist farmers with the availability, the availability of fertilizers uh, by basically relaxing the rules on some of the fertilizers that they were attempting to, to use less or to ban completely. But they're only relaxing the rules for a very short period of time. And just to put this in perspective, uh, farmers that I'm aware of are saying, uh, you know, if you remove nitrogen fertilizer or if nitrogen fertilizer becomes uh, so costly that it can no longer be 
used to produce uh, grains and so on. Um, you effectively reduce if you're relying on, on natural fertilizers instead. Well, there's two things required for that. First of all, we would need to have significantly larger levels of livestock uh, on the land at the moment to produce that natural fertilizer. And of course, uh, that is uh, against the current policy yeah. with respect to climate change. But the issue is that if you stop using uh, nitrogen fertilizers on, on uh, you know, arable crops, uh, you would see a yield, the yields drop by approximately 50%. Um, so th that's the situation that the UK is in. Uh, and I just make the point, you know, the, the UK government has been pushing this uh, wartime, status, wartime standing narrative for the last two years. First of all, it was the wartime standing with respect to COVID. And of course, now we've got the wartime standing because of what uh, of the situation with Russia. But the last time that we were actually in a proper war, um, the, the, strangely enough, we were actually mobilizing people to produce food. And, and grow it everywhere that was possible. Every piece of land that could be used, including in cities, was dug up. Okay, so so I come back to this this thing that, that uh, you know, the, the UK government, no matter how we might criticize them, they're not completely stupid. So they must appreciate that if we are shutting down our food production capability at a time when our imports are becoming riskier uh, and supply chains are being disrupted, then what does that mean? They must have the intention that either people are going to eat less uh, or there are going to be fewer people to eat what we have. So um, what is the policy here? Uh, depopulation, many of our viewers certainly think, and I don't think they're far wrong, Mike, no, actually. Indeed. Okay, well, we're completely out of time. We're going to say to Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, due to the time, um, Alex uh, Thompson and Vanessa Beely have already had to leave us, but we're going to say to them, thank you for joining us as well. Big thank you to all our viewers and supporters, wherever you are. And uh, can we put out a big plea that if we're seeing some difficulties with transmission of information, can you help spread the UK column news? And of course, you're free to uh, take material and discuss it and share it with other people. That's uh, why we're doing it. Um, we can't do an extra today, so apologies for that. We're, we need to fix on a more permanent basis the, the problems that uh, we saw at the beginning of the programme. So uh, we'll see you on Friday, I guess. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Bye-bye.